If I were ever to own a bar, every cocktail, and I mean every single cocktail, I would batch it out. I batch out cocktails. And listen, I know it's cool when you have like a great bartender and you're watching them make this incredible old fashioned and, you know, it gives you all those feelings. I get it. But my bar would be filled with (laughs) a bunch of ex-line cooks who has decided, you know what, we've batched everything out. There's going to be one beautiful ice cube in a glass and we just pour it from a pitcher and then we kind of frown at you and then you give us money. Any, any investor interest? Hmm? Who's excited about my new venture? It's called I Hate You, a bar by Diva Schreeder. <laughs> Welcome to the Sick Palette Podcast. I'm your host, Deepa Shreeder, um, and we are talking cocktails this whole month, specifically gin cocktails. Um, and this particular, and by the way, audience, I don't hate you. That's just the name of the bar because that's just the vibe. Do you know what I mean? Like, I want to set the tone correctly. I, okay, let me put a pitch deck together. You'll get it. You'll get it. Sharks, let me put a pitch deck together. I want you to see my vision of, quote unquote, I hate you. A bar by Deepa Shreeder. <clears throat> Today we're talking about... I. I I feel like every few months I come back to this particular cocktail. It is a, it's a superior cocktail. Um, it's gin-based. It's, it's, also, it's also so close to giving you the feeling of drinking wine in a cocktail form, which is why I like it. We're talking about the French 75 today. French 75... French 75 is a gin and champagne cocktail. We're going to get into the history of it, but before we get into all of that, I want to tell you about my particular history with French 75s. First time I had one. I think one of the reasons why I really, really love French 75s is because it it also started to mark my time in Austin. So I'm originally from Dallas, Texas. Actually, originally from Garland, Texas. I feel like people who are from the suburbs, we do not say the suburb. Um, we say we say the bigger town, but I am from Garland, Texas. I I moved to Austin to essentially um, learn learn more about cooking after uh, being being in a hellscape of a small Italian restaurant staging there. Um, And one of the first places that I would go to, to just sort of experience um, and just sort of see, like maybe I wanted to stage there. And that was Justine's. Justine's, 
especially I feel back in 2010, that was the restaurant. And by the way, still is the restaurant. Justine's, uh, for people who are not acquainted with Austin, Texas, is is sort of an, I guess it's considered now an old school restaurant, but um, it's an east side restaurant, an old school east side restaurant, I would say. Um, it is French focused. I have never, I've never experienced another restaurant quite like Justine's. It's very singular in in the way it is. It captured a time in Austin where everyone was converting a house into a bar. This is like early Lester Pearl vibes. Um, so it captured that that sort of spirit of we can we can turn old houses into new ventures sort of thing. And yeah, is there a little bit of gentrification happening here? Of course, that that it's par for the course. But Justine's was uh, on, in is on Fifth Street, and the the yard, the veranda, the gazebo in the back, it's it's a whole vibe inside. Inside, you're walking into this house. I've never met. Um, a hostess that I thought genuinely liked me. They're all the most gorgeous people you'll ever see in Austin. And they are so upset about having to serve you or having to accommodate you in any way. And that's another reason why I love Justine's. I love feeling that perhaps I'm not wanted there. And it just, it just makes me so happy. <laughs> I feel like more service industry places should have that vibe. Um, the hostess uh, is always just, I'm always thinking to myself, I should address better for, for this person who is standing in front of me and, and showing me what, what beauty could look like. You know what I mean? Um, in the back, or it, not in the back, in, behind the bar, there's a uh, really amazing record collection. Um, a lot of their music is on vinyl, especially inside. It used to also be a place for line cooks uh, because Justine's wouldn't close until uh, two or so. And you could get food until then, too, which was also nuts. Um, this is a service industry kind of restaurant. So even though the food is expensive, yes, they do serve um, definitely a sort of over 50 demographic. You see it all over. They also serve a bunch of surly line cooks, which I love. I love that mix. You rarely see both, both kinds of people, uh, both both of them enjoy a place, and that's Justine's. Um, I remember my friend told me, "This is where you, this is where you get a French seventy-five," and I, I didn't know what a French seventy-five is. And uh, you know, I asked what it was, and it, it honestly, I was like, I, "I'm good." And it was, it was more of like, "No, no, no, we're getting a French seventy-five here." I said, "Okay, fine, sure. Let's let's get French seventy-fives." Justine's French 75s. A lot of times you will 
you will find that a French 75 comes in a champagne flute, and that's great. Um, I'm not sure if they've switched to champagne flutes, but Justine's French 75s used to come in these giant martini glasses, and they were extraordinary. Extraordinary in not just the amount, but it was like extra effervescent. And I don't know if it was just the fact that I felt like I was in a restaurant that described immediately why I wanted to be in Austin. And so it was the vibe. It was the people. Um, But it was also just something that felt... When I had a friend 75 at Justine's, I, I swear, anytime I have a friend 75 somewhere else, it's just not as good. And it, this is not a complicated drink by any means. It's one part gin, three parts champagne, a little lemon juice and some simple at the heart of it. That's a, that's a French 75 through and through. But it was just done better at Justine's. And, it, and to this day, anytime I go there, um, that, that is always involved. French 75s. Now, it depends. If you're having French 75s all night, then that's a different kind of Justine's night. Um, probably going to end that night with Fernet shots. Or if it's, you know, a calmer dinner and you're just having a French 75 aperitif or what have you. You can do both at Justine's. Um, so that's just my... Also, also in my storied career, anytime someone asks for um, recommendations in a magazine or uh, I one time had to do a Thrillist show, I will always talk about Justine's. Um, maybe I'll do a podcast on all of my favorite favorite places in Austin. We'll... we'll table that for now but yeah Ooh, French 75 at Justine's I need an excuse man let's get there as soon as possible so we did also just uh within that segment talk about what is in a French 75 French 75 is uh like I said a, a fairly simple cocktail um and we're going to talk about uh, the different iterations of it. So this is a cocktail that technically its origins are in the early 1900s. I read a couple articles. There was one that was essentially like, a French 75 has existed uh, since the dawn of time. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but that was only one article. But I guess what their point was, like people have been mixing gin and champagne uh, for as long as uh, gin and champagne were in the same room together. Which, I'm not sure if this is true. Um, and maybe because I, I equate gin with champagne so much, I just don't know when, when that all began. You know what I mean? Where like, I don't know if it's as intuitive mixing gin with champagne or the fact that a French 75 is so good. So when I think about making a gin cocktail, I think about champagne as well. So early 1900s, though, that's the majority of articles uh, decide that that's 
that's probably where we're starting here. Um, and it's it's a name based off of uh, World War One. So this is also what's kind of interesting about all of these kind of turn of the century or close to turn of the century cocktails. Because there was no Netflix or no sort of... Um, it wasn't that you didn't have the abundance of pop culture in the way that we do today. People understood the intricacies of war more, um, or at least propaganda of uh, certain aspects of war were far more prevalent. Um, I feel like now when we're talking about war, it's talking about it through Twitter. Um, and getting updates from there. So your updates are are not just through one point of view. Um, because I, when I was reading the origin, I was like, this is, this is pretty dark. So this is a cocktail uh, based off of uh, the French army's weapon of choice, which was a French 75 millimeter. Uh, in the tasting table article that is cited below, it says... A soldier was able to fire 15 rounds of ammo per minute, making it one of the deadliest on the market. Why is this cocktail fodder? (laughs) As news of the war spread in 1914, one French bartender decided to create a specialty World War I-inspired cocktail coined Soissant Cans. That's right. The French is back, baby. That's right. French miner over here. I think that's how you spelled uh, Q-U-I-N-Z-E. I think you pronounce it cans. <laughs> also, this is just going from memory. I researched everything about a French 75 except uh, to correct my pronunciation here. And I really do apologize. Uh, but soissant cans just basically means 75. Uh, the dinner immediate, I mean, the drink, sorry, guys, the drink immediately started being compared to its namesake gun being referred to as the most powerful drink in the world, um, and hits with remarkable precision. No one, no one within, within this were like, huh, should we name a cocktail, um, about, about a very, very probably like gruesome part of the war that this this machine, this gun is able to provide. I mean, I get it. They're just like, hey, it packs a punch, just like the French 75 millimeter. It's a deadly uh, weapon of choice. And so is this gin and champagne cocktail. <laughs> okay. Um. And it's gone through several iterations. So uh, it wasn't always just the gin and the champagne together. Uh, In the beginning, there was gin and brandy and grenadine, which, ew, uh, lemon juice, uh, calvados. Um, And at one point, the French 75, you ready for this? Replaced the lemon juice with, of course, absinthe. So I guess they're right on that that choice. Imagine if someone was like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This has uh, some gin, some champagne. You're like, okay, cool. 
little bit of simple syrup, just a little bit of sugar. You're like, okay, all right, I'll try it. I'm not done. Um, and some absinthe. Just just a little bit of absinthe, okay? What does that, um, oh, we replace the lemon juice. Okay, so it doesn't sound like the absinthe um, has the same flavor components of lemon juice. So why are we replacing that with absinthe? One would ask. Anyways, it's not made with absinthe anymore. Um, and throughout all of these iterations, the one constant was that it was always gin-based. Uh, in the beginning, uh, it was served in uh, a Tom Collins glass, and now you'll see it being served in champagne flutes, which makes a lot of sense because it is three parts champagne. Um, or, like I said, I've seen it. I've seen it in a, a coupe or a martini glass, for sure. Um, so that's that's your French 75. A, the world's deadliest cocktail, now 100% without absinthe. So when we talk about, I want to kind of circle back into this idea of champagne and gin always being together. So that, that article I talked about where they essentially were like, uh, champagne and gin have been, been here with us as long as, you know, mankind Mankind had discovered fire, whatever they were saying. There have been citations from certain authors uh, traveling in Europe, essentially saying, you know, the the gin was served in champagne glasses or, or giving some sort of idea that perhaps gin and champagne were always sort of uh, circling around each other. I will say, as far as flavor notes go, I mean, it is a match made, you know, you've got the, the juniper, you've got the floral from gin. Um, and then you mix it with, especially if you mix it with like other sparkling wines, I find you can have something really special. I would love to make a French 75, for instance, with, um, with something that is sparkly from fruit blood, of course, you know, like I can see that peach pet gnat being kind of a perfect pairing and something to replace the champagne. Um, especially on the rise of fruit wines, I I feel like there's a lot, a lot that we can play around with. Um, I've also noticed a lot of small batch uh, natural wineries are starting to incorporate more fruit. I I think we talked about it a few months ago about the rise of fruit wines and what it's going to do. I think it's definitely going to make a more equitable uh, winescape. But I also think fruit wines are going to be uh, helping helping make these cocktails, these, especially these kind of slightly old school, but like kind of forever cocktails. Um, I think it's just going to give it an upgrade. So I, I am really excited to see how fruit wines are going to be incorporated in the cocktail world. Um, 
I also I also find that I enjoy a French 75, strangely enough, in the wintertime, in the cold. For two reasons. You can get better citrus when it's, you know, closer to December, January, sometimes November, just kind of depends, just depends. Um, and if you're able to get your hands on some really exciting, you know, Meyer lemons or different kinds of Texas grapefruit, then then you can really play off of like, let's say, um, Love Bite from Fruit Blood, which is a cherry, uh, cherry sparkling wine. And then you have like, um, then you have like really a different play on, on what a French 75 can be. I feel like I talk a lot about fruit blood and it is because, uh, number one, (laughs) I am, I'm, I am so, I am so perplexed on why, uh, why their wines taste so damn good. It's just, it's incredible stuff to me. It is, it is just so singular in brand and vision. The other reason is I, I really do feel I want to see fruit wines get into a cocktail space. And I think when we are able to drink a product on its own, which you can, but then also make it super adaptable to make these cocktails that are already, by the way, you go to any of these restaurants, you're getting like a $17, $14 cocktail. If I'm going to get a $17 cocktail, happy to do it, by the way. You You know I'm not the one to crib about food prices when we're asking when we're asking people in restaurants um, to, to make sure that they pay their workers, yeah, that then it has to fall on the consumer, yes. $17 cocktail sounds right. But if I am having a $17 cocktail, give me, give me an interesting uh, portion of that three-part champagne. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't need that necessarily to be champagne. And listen... I, I love champagne. I'm not, I'm not against champagne, but to me, that part of the French 75, that three parts of sparkling dot, dot, dot is how I see it. I do not see it as a three parts champagne. And especially since a lot of those early tones of French 75 started with, you know, an apple brandy, if you are able to get sort of a more more fruit forward component in your sparkling, um, then I think it's like a it's like a, a nice little kind of throwback onto this gruesomely titled cocktail, you know. Plus, plus here's my secret reason for wanting um, for wanting to be able to play around that three parts of sparkling. When we're able to do that. We're able to make a cocktail that not only highlights uh, everything that's going on within that drink, but then we're able to expand what does a French 75 pair well with. It's really interesting what opening 
the wine world can do. Because when you open up the idea of what wine can be, when you decide that you do not need to own, uh, you know, a whole vineyard, uh, then what does that do to the demographic of winemakers, number one? Number two, then it really does allow other chefs, mostly, predominantly, chefs of color who want to cook food that reminds them of their parents or, you know, uh, one part of their identity, then it allows flavors to be able to go into spaces that typically they aren't, right? Fine dining is fine dining, not because the food is better here than it is in another place. It can be, right? But that's not actually why fine dining exists. Fine dining is a place where you can essentially other anything, anything that doesn't work, work in your social class. That's all it is, right? Fine dining is about creating barriers. It's the kind of music you would typically hear. It's the kind of food you get. It's the kind of plating you get, right? Even the idea of plating. The idea of plating is um, is based is based on the Western idea of eating. So if we start to take away some of these constructs, and by the way, that's not saying we shouldn't have these kinds of plating. I I love going to Justine's for that. I love the fact that not only am I going to get this gigantic Friend 75 in a martini glass, I'm going to get food um, that, that does have some of that fancy plating that I do get that, you know, like on the bias cut of a scallion on top of my cold crab salad. Of course I love that shit. Who doesn't? Stuff is delicious. I would also want the ability to go to another restaurant that doesn't do that at all. That maybe just serves me a really dank tamarind curry in a pot. And that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying if we are able to make cocktails, um, and when I say more equitable, I don't mean more affordable. I mean more equitable of really sort of bringing in craft makers, not just from Napa or not just from, you know, upstate New York or whatever, whatever is considered here in America, if we're able to sort of say, oh, we've got amazing artists all across this country and we're going to tap into those flavors, uh, that's, that's going to be really significant in the shift. And let's go back to that word of affordability because I think that could be a little bit triggering. Um, this is something where... When I talk about the affordability of food, sometimes um, people are confused with the messaging, right? They're saying, well, how can you be for higher prices at uh, restaurants, higher prices for drinks? You know, this stuff is really expensive. It is. It is expensive. But that's because it should be expensive. Because... If you want the people working at restaurants 
to be able to only work at one place instead of two or three places, the food has to be more expensive. For all of the things we're asking for a restaurant to do, the food has to be more expensive. If we want them to source from farmers that are practicing sustainable farming, if we want our restaurants to source locally, if we want our restaurants to be more mindful and and who they're reaching out, the food, the food and drink has to be more expensive. Now, if we pay people more, more people can also eat at those restaurants as well. Because this is also where people think gentrification plus higher prices are pricing out people of color. They are pricing out some people of color. Absolutely they are. And that is some shitty shit. But there's also uh, the idea that we should be paying, (laughs) paying more, paying more for restaurants to be able to pay their workers. It's, It's the truth. Everyone should be paid more. And everyone should pay more. And there's a lot more complicated nuance than that. There really is. And and I know that this was a conversation about French 75. But I don't know, y'all. I'm on one sometimes. So sometimes I'm just going to sneak in a little bit of my, uh, let's call it my restaurant theories. And what I would like to see for restaurants in general. In the fine dining space. Okay. Uh, let's, let's have more conversations where I'm screaming into the phone about things that you may or may not agree with. Um, I think, I think we're all done with the French 75. So below, uh, you are going to find my version of a French 75. Um, it's, it's, it's of course, involving more charred lime. I, I, I sear your limes, y'all. Let's get a little bit of that, that sweet and sour mix in there, please. Um, so that'll be below. And then also exciting is uh, I have a dinner, the start of a dinner series with um, Antonelli's Cheese here in Austin, Texas. Um, you will find below also a link to get tickets to our dinner, which is um, on, let me make sure I'm saying this correctly. Yes, November 19th. And then um, there is also a place for you to sign up for updates of when me and Ava of Austin Quaco uh, will be dropping our dinner series called Dolly Supper Club. Uh, which will also be happening in November. So we're finally, we're finally starting, we're starting to talk about events, which is very exciting. Uh, so check those out. Coming up, coming up, coming up. Uh, that Notorious Jaggery newsletter, it's, it's finally arriving. Uh, so that'll be coming up. Um, I should be having the, I know I said the Bear podcast this week. Listen, guys. We're getting to it, okay? 
Uh, so that'll be dropping soon as well. And um, a day party episode as well as a supper club report with Ava of Austin Quaco. So that'll be really, really fun. Um, yeah, I think we're all done here. Thank you as usual for listening. And if you do want to become a paid subscriber, but you want to check it out, go ahead and do a one week trial. Check out all of the archives. See what Sick Palette is all about. Um, and, you know, if you're ready to make that plunge, it's $30 a year for at least what feels like to me a constant, a constant stream of content um, and definitely not going to be slowing down any, any moment too soon. All right. I'll talk to y'all later. Bye.